I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Danny Cabrera, who's the co-founder and CEO of BioBots. Danny, welcome to Launchpad. Hey, Carl. How you doing? Great. Hey, before we get started, I want to point our listeners to your website, and it's biobots.io. Uh, Danny, give us the elevator pitch for biobots. Okay, yeah, sure. So uh, biobots is building tools that are empowering people to design and engineer living things. And uh, our first set of products is um, pretty much an ecosystem of comprised of a 3D printer that can print mixtures of cells and different biocompatible materials. Um, different bio inks that go into that. Think of these as like different colored cartridges on your on your inked printer. Only these are for tissues instead of for, for printing in colors. And we've got a big softer layer that wraps around the whole thing. And that's really the first step in you know, pushing biology into into the third dimension and also beginning to digitize it. Wow. All right. So this is a big topic, really the stuff of science fiction coming real. So it's really amazing. So let's back up and, and start with the basic idea behind 3D printing, putting aside the, the biological elements. So explain to our listeners what how 3D printing works. Yes. I mean, there, there are a couple of different ways um, that 3D printing works. However, the general principle is that you're fabricating something by adding material uh, layer, one layer at a time. So traditional 3D printers, the, the desktop ones that we see, uh, basically work by melting a, a spool of plastic. Um, think of this like a, you know, like a thin tube of plastic that gets uh, melted at a printhead using a very hot, hot end. Think of it like a glue gun. And uh, this device is moving in three axes. So the, the printhead is moving in X, Y, and Z and depositing material as it moves. And um, as, you know, as it's moving up and down and side to side, you can begin to fabricate a structure. Um, so most, I mean, that's pretty much how plastic 3D printing works. And uh, it's a little bit different than bioprinting, but, uh, you know, the same general concept. We're at, creating a structure by adding material um, into something that, you know, originally wasn't there at all. Yeah. So you could think about it as, as you mentioned, like a glue gun that's squirting a, a ribbon of, of melted material that then gets solidified. Or think of like silly string or even like a like a pastry tube that would be squeezing uh, pastry cream or something on uh, out out through a nozzle and by by constructing by squeezing the material in uh, and creating a pattern you can then create layers that overall construct a three-dimensional shape so that's the basic idea behind the most popular 3d printing ideas now now tell us how this can possibly work for biological materials Right. So, I mean, we, we, we adapted the technology a little bit, um, still using the same sort of principle of having a printhead that's moving in three axes. Uh, but we developed a, a new process that, where you can, instead of using plastic, you can, you can use um, basically tubes full of different biocompatible materials, things like collagen or gelatin, and also living cells. And um, by using compressed air, you can push those materials out of the nozzle. <clears throat> and there are multiple different ways that we have for cross-linking these. So basically, from turning them, to, for turning them from a liquid to a solid, without killing all of the cells. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of different methods. One that we started with was using visible lights. So you throw these materials out onto the dish, um, shine a light on them. As soon as the light touches them, they go from being a liquid to being a solid, and they don't kill all of the cells. And uh, you know, we've been doing this for about 
two years, and now we have a couple of other techniques that we're, that we're using that involve chemical cross-linking, some involve temperature. Uh, but in general, you know, it's, it's really just um, what we're doing is put positioning cells, controlling the 3D um, geometry of where we position cells, um, different biomaterials, and uh, different other biological factors to let our customers begin to design co- more complex and more useful tissues. Okay, so I'm going to try to explain, mirror back to you what I think I heard, and, and you can tell me where I got it wrong. So let's just, for simple simple purposes, imagine that there are two materials. One is a is not a biological material as it doesn't contain live cells it is is a structural material and it might be a gel or collagen or something that's in liquid form you squirt it down into a pattern and then you somehow have to solidify it in order to retain structure and that's what you meant by the use of light or chemicals for cross-linking which is a way of connecting the molecules in a liquid in order to make them solid so that's to create some structure and then and then this other bit is the the biological material itself which is what is that is that a soup of cells of some kind i mean so the, the devices are you know it's an open system so you can there's, you shouldn't really differentiate between the biological materials and the scaffold materials. Okay. Um, they, they, they can be intermixed. Uh, you know, you can have just cells without any of, any of these materials. You can have just materials without any cells. Ah, I see. Have, have yeah. them combined. Um, and yeah, I mean, those materials are, are cells, so they're they're also liquids. Uh, they're you know, they're suspensions of cells um, that, that have the living cells from either humans or animals or plants um, that scientists have cultured in the lab and been able to you know, basically extract in the culture. Okay, so now let's make the leap to to application. And I suspect that you're not yet printing replacement parts for humans. Um, but give us a little bit of the of maybe the science fiction or the vision of what I would be able to do eventually uh, in three D printing with the with the three D printing process. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely want to note that you know we're we're focusing on building the tools. Right. Uh, so we're not we're not pursuing any applications ourselves. Um, that's we're really leaving that up to our customers. And um, so some examples of what people are you know, have been working on or have, have published and had success with. Um, there, I think the latest one that just came out was um, a scientist over at Harvard uh, developed a basically a, a small device about an inch by by two inches. Um, that that was a mimic of of the, basically the way that the body, the human body, um, goes through thrombosis, and uh, this was you know, previously very difficult to model, um, and, so, and, and, and basically outside of the body. Um, and the, the flat two D cultures that we had that were doing this weren't very accurate. So most of the models that we had were relying on animals, which don't have a single um, you know human cell inside of them. <clears throat> so being able to fabricate a, a new model for for thrombosis that is entirely built out of human cells, um, you know, and gives a lot more realistic biomarkers of what's actually going on in the body, um, is is useful for companies who are trying to develop um, new drugs that are you know looking at improving thrombosis or getting rid of thrombosis, or looking at just different effects of how these drugs could affect um, you know that, fibro- that thrombosis process. Uh, so that was one one cool application. And in general, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, scientists who are who are using our devices to develop. 3D tissue models for for you know, for different disease models um, or for um, different organ systems, things like liver, kidney, um, heart. Not that they're building the fully functioning organ, but they're building a small piece of it um, that captures a lot more of the function 
that is native to the body. And, um, and then being able to use that to either develop new compounds, new drugs, um, and eventually definitely keeping an eye out on implantation. So we do mm-hmm. have some, some of these, um, you know, some, some research that's going into animals now. This is um, you know, around bone and, and cartilage. Um, people are printing these structures and implanting them into animals and seeing how they, how they do. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully gearing goes up for clinical trials um, relatively soon. And, um, and so let me just underscore at least what I understood there. The, the idea would be that there are some, some, some research, some procedures, some, some, some research, let's say, in related to healthcare, related to, to human health um, or biology, in which the tests that you could do in a petri dish, in a gel or in a liquid, are are not as not as uh, as faithful in replicating the actual disease state in the body as you'd like, and so this 3D printed structure is actually a pretty good model to use for testing ideas in the lab. Uh, that's better than the petri dish, but but obviously safer than actually testing in animals or humans. Did I get that right, roughly speaking? Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and not, not only is it, is it is it safer, it also you know it's just it's, it's extra information. So as you as you start thinking about you know running a clinical trial, uh, you can begin to you know, really have more data and figure out whether or not the, you know your clinical trial is likely to work. Mm-hmm. And even if you take it even a step beyond that, right, you can begin taking cells directly from patients before you enroll them in a the clinical trial, um, develop a tissue out of that patient's own cells, and begin to test your your new compound to see how it's going to react on that individual patient. And I uh, really begin to, you know, target and personalize uh, clinical trials and eventually medicine a lot more. Yeah. So let, let me ask a, a question about cell biology, I suppose, a uh, su- subject I don't really know much about, so it might be an ignor- ignorant question. But isn't, doesn't the body, isn't, isn't the, don't, don't cells uh, divide and develop and take, take on the form of, of tissues in the body? And and therefore, why do you need non-cellular material, and and why do you need to print these things as opposed to just letting the cells do their own thing? Uh, I mean, yeah. So cells in, in the body, when they're properly stimulated the way that the body does, definitely you know grow and build our entire bodies naturally without any interference from us, um, other than the start state. <laughs> but um, it's it's a, it's a lot more difficult to replicate that. Um, in the lab, and you know, as soon as you take a cell outside of the body, um, you're changing its gene expression. You're changing the way it behaves. You're changing its morphology. Everything about it becomes different. And uh, to get that cell from you know, to, from that state to revert it all the way back to that progenitor state, um, that's it's doable. It's still difficult. But then, once you even even if you do have that progenitor state, to be able to get that cell to turn into you know, to get a stem cell to turn into a heart, is you know, it's still a huge mystery. And bioprinting is offering us, um, you know, it's, it's a tool that, that we can use to, to begin to explore the effects of geometry. So if we begin to pattern these cells in 3D space, along with other, not only, not only scaffolds materials, but also other chemical cues that we can pattern into these, into these cultures, um, you know, that, that, that may be a better way, um, or that may, that may be the way to get these cells to behave the way we want them to. Um, it's probably not going to be the way, but it's, uh, it's definitely one of, the, one of the tools that's going to be involved in the arsenal. And, um, you know, it's, it's an early, it's definitely early days for, for the transition between two-dimensional biology and 3D. But um, these, these tools are, are really helpful right now. And um, people are able to, to get to tissues, or fabricate tissues that are a lot more closer, a lot better mimics of what's happening inside the body. Danny, where did this idea come from? Yeah, um, so it was, it was um, I mean, basically I spent 
all of undergrad uh, working on biology research after after having bought into the idea that you know biology was really going to become the engineering discipline of, of our generation that we were going to be able to use biology to to build all of the useful products that we're used to and also a lot of new products that that we that we don't even, that we weren't even aware of yet <clears throat> and uh, having having worked in the field for you know a couple of years with a computer science background I was pretty frustrated by uh, two things uh, the first was that pretty much the, the lack big lack of automation um, in biology, most of biology is still done by hand. Basically, people running around, um, you know, graduate students and postdocs running around and moving little tiny volumes of liquid in and out of um, you know, little plastic tubes. And they do that by hand, which is really irreproducible and expensive. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just very, very time consuming. And, and the second thing that I noticed was that you know, most of the biology that we were doing was really done on flat petri dishes. Um, and the cells were grown in sheets, which is not the way that they naturally interact at all. If you look at cells inside the body, they, you know, they're actually fairly different. Um, and at around that time, I was, um, I was uh, a buddy of mine, Ricky, who's our other co-founder, uh, was working on building a, a 3D printer. And we had the idea to, to get it to you know, start modifying it so they could print uh, cells and different biocompatible materials. And you know, it, it started off as an academic project. It was um, my senior design project. And you know, once I feel like you know, it, it definitely made sense because this device, a 3D printer, is a digital fabrication tool that you can interface with using your laptop, literally sending it lines of code. And uh, it's a robot, so it'll do the exact same thing every single time, getting rid of that reproducibility problem and sort of beginning to get rid of some of the manual labor involved in biology. And the second thing is, since, since it's a 3D printer, it can actually begin to fabricate 3D tissues that, that we can use you know, to, to model and mimic biology. So it seemed to, to start addressing those two concerns that I had. Um, and you know, we started working on it, uh, got a prototype up and running, and as I was uh, interviewing for graduate school, I started pitching it to a few of uh, the professors that I was interviewing for, or interviewing with, and uh, yeah, people, people were excited about it. So at some point, I decided to not go after grad school and just spin this off and start selling the devices and keep moving from there. All right. So I want to underscore just a couple things. First of all, how, how proud I am of an engineering undergrad at Penn is just two years ago. I mean, you were a 2014 grad of our engineering school. Uh, this was your senior design project. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And and uh, But the, the question I want to ask is, so you have a senior design project, which is really the stuff of science fiction in some ways. Um, at what point did you start to to, did this thing start to coalesce as a, as a business, as an idea for a business? Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I, you know, we we went through we we, we went through a, an innovation competition at Penn mm-hmm. um, called Penvention, mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily make make it start you know make me start thinking of it as a business then, um, but that definitely kind of got it started. Uh, everybody, all the other people that were competing seemed to be doing businesses and trying to create businesses, and they, they were asking us things like financial projections and stuff that we had no idea about. So having to go through that exercise was, was helpful. Um, but I think really when, when, it, when it became obvious was, I mean, kind of like when push came to shove, I was about to start my PhD, and uh, I was going to have to drop the project, and I was like, well, kind of don't, I think I, think, I think I could turn this into something bigger, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do that in graduate school. So... I think it probably happened when we sold the first units. Uh, mm-hmm. That was like the sort of ticking point saying, all right, well, 
we can we can make money off of these. It's gonna it's gonna take us a while to figure it all out, and it's gonna take some more cash. But uh, but at least we know that people are willing to pay money for these. Um, so that means that the business is probably the right avenue. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that the the business plan. Well, well, well. Give me the vision because the these first units you're selling to researchers, and but it, it, when you made the case to investors about a business, did you tell a story beyond that? And what was that story? Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, I feel like we've been pretty consistent with the the big picture vision, which is that we're going to begin to you know these these devices are going to exist everywhere, and you're. All of biology is going to move from being 2D into being 3D. Mm-hmm. This is not just limited to tissue engineers or material scientists. This is really going to touch everybody who is involved in the life sciences industry, going from agriculture to cosmetics, uh, medical devices, pharma, the whole nine yards. Um, you know, this is the first. This is the first tool that we're making. It's the first tool in a whole new stack of tools that need to be built transition to take biology from being 2D into being 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that's going to enable us to do, I mean, you know, we're, we, we just want to be the tools provider, the sort of the underlying infrastructure that supports all these different applications. But, you know, people, you know, the, the promise of biology is to, to do incredible things like, you know, cure different diseases, eliminate the organ waiting list, um, push life to other planets, or even begin to remediate our own planet. And uh, I think those are those are all things that by pushing biology into 3D, we're going to actually be able to achieve a lot more quickly. And also by beginning to digitize biology and really having all the data getting, being captured and being able to be analyzed and acted upon is a huge is a huge step in the right direction. You know, never is there was there a better setting for me to ask this question, which is about the minimum viable product, because that vision is a huge vision. And yet you need to get start started with selling something as soon as you could. So how did you think about what the minimum viable product was? Um, you know, we basically was like the, where the prototype was at when, when, when the, where the prototype was when we had to make the call of whether or not we should go to graduate school. <laughs> that was it. it was, so it was, was like, it. uh-oh, like, I got to sell it because otherwise I, have to, I won't be able to pay the rent. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so it wasn't. I mean, I would say it wasn't uh, as intentional as it could have been, but um, but in hindsight, it was definitely you know the, the right the right move. Um, like you know having 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 this uh, having having a prototype and having a having something to start with um, makes it so that I can sort of back into the bigger vision from where we are now. Yeah. Um, as opposed to if it were totally broad, it's just this big, big idea. Yeah. Hey, you know, we're going to be able to design any living thing on your laptop. Yeah. It's like, you know, to figure out what the first step is starting from that is pretty tough. Yeah. But, but there's something really nice about your early customers and that is that they're researchers and they, they are on the cutting edge. They know this is not a shrink wrapped piece of equipment, um, like an iPhone. Um, Tell us a little bit about that interaction with those early customers. Who were they, and what's the interaction been like? Yeah, I mean, hey, these these people are, are amazing. They're um, you know, they're, they're top scientists, at, you know, pretty much the best um, research institutions, academic, government, um, industry, pretty much anywhere in the world, and they. They have very specific uh, projects that they're working on. That they they have their own visions of you know of how how to get to that goal. And um, when we talk to them, what we're trying to do is figure out if our tool can help them. And there's no real you know convincing. It's more like hey, you know, 
I want to look, tell, tell us about what you want to do and tell us what, what you're working on. And, uh, and if we think that this device can help, then we'll tell you. And if we don't, then we'll also tell you that. Um, but they, they've been wonderful to work with. They're, they're very open. They give us a lot of great feedback. Uh, they're definitely the innovators in that adoption curve. And um, we've been learning a lot from them. I mean, we've been able to productize a lot of new new reagents, a lot of new inks, and a lot of new products, uh, new hardware additions and software additions based you know, almost entirely on their feedback. So we're, mm-hmm. we're very close to them, and uh, there's no way that you know, there'd be a next step uh, without these without these people. Um, so we're really excited that they've chosen to work with us and you know, continue, hopefully they'll continue to work with us and continue building this future together. Yeah, you know, I, I was remiss in not getting you just to describe for us visually what the product looks like and, and what it costs initially. So just describe the product for us and, and what they pay for and what they get. Yeah, so the... Like I said, you know, there's there's sort of like three technology verticals here. The first is the the hardware, um, and that's a 12 by 12 by 12 inch um, aluminum um, sort of box, you would say. And inside of the box, um, it's a, it has like open panels so you can see in it. But inside of the box, um, you've got an extruder, which is basically a print head. It actually has two print heads that you can fill up with your with your materials. This is where you put in your biocompatible materials and your cells. Um, and so that, that's sort of that's what's one part of it. And you, that that costs uh, ten thousand dollars, and you get a device. And um, it also comes with a starter kit of of wetware products, is all we call them. These are our cartridges or our, our bio inks, um, and they're not quite the cartridges to really ship as powders. Um, but we we give people a free starter kit of them so they can basically have a positive control, get started, um, start printing some stuff, get familiarized with the ecosystem. And then the last piece is the software layer that really sits on top of all of that. It's sort of like the operating system for the lab that helps us capture analytics on the on the bots. It also begins to help our customers standardize these 3D workflows. Most of the time, you know, they don't have any workflows for this stuff, so having a, a software tool where they can really log exactly what they're doing, how they're doing, and the results that they're getting is very helpful for them. It also has some analytics built in so they can you know, begin to optimize some of their studies. But it's not quite at the point where it's completely digital. There's still some, some manual uh, interactions. But you know, it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. How do how did you think about you? You said you you effectively defined your MVP as what you had, and said, "All right, this is it. We're going to see if we can sell it." How did you think about pricing? When I went to your website, I know I noticed uh, uh, you've got this very even price, no bullshit, ten thousand dollars. It's not nine thousand nine hundred ninety five. It's ten thousand. How did you think about pricing for this product, which it, it has no real analog out there? Right. Um, so, Timmy, hey, you know, when we started off, what we what we did with uh, with the MVPs, uh, or like, you know, I wouldn't even really call them MVP, MVPs. They're like super early alphas. Um, those, or you know, the, the first couple of units, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, we just had to get a sale for the sake of like proving to ourselves that somebody could buy this. Um, and we were you know, didn't do any real research. We just like started selling them for whatever we could get, um, <laughs> uh, which was not so great. But I mean, it wasn't the best idea, but it definitely got the got the job done. And then um, we sold a few that way, uh, maybe like three or four. And then after that, I kind of uh, started thinking about you know if we were going to scale this. I mean, it's easy enough to sell I think three or four of them, but it was going to be a lot harder to start. You know, how do we go from that to selling forty or from forty to four hundred? Um, so started doing some research um, into the types of customers that we could target initially, and that was mostly academics. 
Um, we were able to pull up a list of uh, NSF and NIH-funded scientists that were working um, in, in areas that, that were you know, sort of relevant uh, or sort of, you know, t- that touched this, this, this stuff. We thought that those were a pretty solid lead list. Um, and then looking through the grant terms, we found that the discretionary budget on equipment for, for these grants was $5,000. So basically at $5,000, um, these people could, could put in an order, no questions asked. They didn't have to justify it to anybody. If they had the extra cash, they could throw it in. Um, and most, and we, and we could easily go ahead and like look through which grants were expiring sooner, which ones were going on for longer, um, and sort of start targeting people that way. And that's how we sold, uh, you know, a, a good amount of the of the early units. That was our our first generation units. Um, then we launched this second gen product last January, so it's been almost a year. It's been about a year. Um, and this one we priced uh, differently because we felt that we had already, you know, sort of begun to build that that mark um, people started to know who we were and there was no lot you know we were no longer looking for like first gen testers this is a second generation product so we we upped the price um, the decision to make it ten thousand uh, came from from basically speaking to a lot of other people that have been selling life science tools to scientists um, and getting some of their advice and then also speaking to our customers and asking them hey would it have been a lot more difficult for you to get your hands on something like this if the price would double um, so, you know, we had a lot of those conversations and we set on this price. Um, the reason why we decided to keep it constant for everyone is because, like you said, I, I mean, I, I think this industry is generally plagued by a lot of bullshit pricing schemes. And uh, we just didn't want to be a part of that. I mean, we kind of uh, we thought, you know, hey, listen, this is this is the best price that we can offer everyone. Um, this is not special pricing for pharma or special pricing for academics. This is the price for everyone. Um, and this is the best price that we can do across the board. We're not trying to screw anybody over. Everybody's going to get it from the same thing. All right, and, uh, Danny, I'm going to I'm gonna have to interrupt you on that on that enthusiastic note, which is awesome. I love that attitude, but we're actually out of time. So, uh, Danny, amazing story, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Thanks for coming in. Absolutely, Carl. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. So check them out, biobots.io, biobots.io. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.